0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, um, great to see you. Jonah Chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Let me start out with, uh, just kind of set the table for us this morning. How many of y'all have seen the movie Vantage Point? Anybody? Uh, Came out a couple years ago. Okay, so we've got a few takers. Uh, okay, so I, I think it's a really just interesting kind of plot line. So let me kind of get you up to date on on kind of what the plot and the story of Vantage Point is. It starts where, it, kind of the movie opens in Spain, where the President of the United States, is kind of called this international type summit, where they are about to sign kind of this international treaty to fight terrorism. So you've kind of got this whole thing, you know, thing going on, and as a part of of what's going on in that week or weekend, whatever it is, in that summit, there's an open meeting in kind of a city plaza there in Spain, and so uh, so it's kind of an open to the public forum where where some of these dignitaries are going to be speaking, and so the president of the United States is there. He gets up to speak as he goes to the you know the podium. He uh, he's about to start when you hear an assassin's shot ring out, and the president is hit. And so, you know, I mean, you can just imagine the pandemonium just kind of ensues. You've got people going crazy. Three minutes later, a bomb goes off in, in the plaza. Okay, now, and this is where I think the storyline gets really interesting. From there, um, you have kind of the tape rewinds, and you watch five different times the 20 minutes leading up to the shooting— the shooting and then kind of those immediate events that follow. So it rewinds and you start with Dennis Quaid. He's kind of your main character where it's going to kind of do this, this whole, get, kind of give the perspective of his vantage point as he watches those 20 minutes prior, the shooting and then those immediate after effects. Then it rewinds and it goes back to, um, a Spanish, uh, police officer, shows his kind of perspective of of the whole kind of set of events. Then it rewinds and goes to an American tourist and his kind of perception of what happened. And then it goes, and not to ruin it for you, but it goes to the president of the United States vantage point and kind of gives his kind of view of what happens here. And he's kind of got this interesting little twist to that one, all right? And so, and then the, the final one, it goes to the group of people that are actually behind it. And it gives their vantage point as to what's happening here. And as every time as you read over, or as you listen to the story, rewind, you see the story again, play out through the eyes of someone else, you know, like the, the connections start to happen like the plot starts to be filled in, that what's happening starts to make sense to you. Every time you watch it through another perspective, more and more of the story comes to life. Okay, so book of Jonah, Jonah chapter one, here's the goal today. I'm gonna try to walk through this whole chapter And we're going to walk through it from first the eyes of our pagan sailors. They don't know God. They're not connected to God. They have no idea what's happening here. You've got the the perspective of all this stuff happening through them. And then we're going to rewind and we're going to go through the eyes of our prophet, our man Jonah, and watch these same events unfold through his eyes, kind of through his perspective. And then we'll kind of give a couple of concluding kind of parts to chapter one. Okay, so we'll start perspective number one. Through the eyes of our pagan sailors. Okay, so just imagine, like, you get to verse four. Before you get to verse four, before you read verse four, imagine if you're one of these sailors, right? I mean, you're just, it's a normal day for you. It's just like any other day. You're at the docks, you're loading the cargo onto your ship, when all of a sudden this unfamiliar face approaches. Right, They have no idea who Jonah is. They don't know that he's a prophet of God. They don't know that, that he has just heard the word of the Lord that has said, go to Nineveh. They don't know that he is a renegade on a rebellious run from God. They don't know any of those details. They don't have any access to that backstage sort of information. None of that is privy to them. So, so you get to verse four. They are an unsuspecting people who allow this this, this passenger, Jonah, to pay his fare and jump on with them. So when you get to, now, by the way they're not going to stay in the dark for long though, right? By the time you finish verse 4, they are well aware of something is in the air here. Okay, so read verse 4 with me. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And we've talked about this. The narrator is definitely bringing to the surface that this storm was not an ordinary storm. It uses the word great, Hebrew word uh, gadol. It's used seven times in the book of Jonah. He is trying to paint the picture that this storm is severe. The size of this storm is abnormal. I think it's interesting, even in the Hebrew language, by the time you get to the end of verse 4, the author is using words that when you say them in Hebrew, sound like the waves breaking against a boat, right? And so you've got just this size and severity of the storm that's highlighted. Okay, and then watch the sailor's response in verse 5. The storm was severe enough that it brings—okay, so verse 5, okay, then the mariners were afraid—you see this? Then the mariners were afraid. You get this accurate picture right off the get-go that this storm is, is catastrophic enough and big enough in their mind that, that, that it's threatening to their life, it's threatening to the boat, that, that something's got to give here, that this is way out of the scope of a sprinkling in the backyard, right? That this is a severe, life-threatening situation. Have you ever been in one of those situations, by the way? I mean, that ha- that, that heart-pounding, palms-start-to-sweat situation where you realize that any moment could be your last. That, that's the intensity that you get in verse 5. They are terrified. Now watch their two responses to, to being afraid. And by the way, you probably have some of these that kind of spring up in you too. Watch, watch, how, watch how they respond to this fear. Response number one, next phrase. Okay, so the mariners were afraid. The next phrase, it says this, and each cried out to his God. Okay, this is where Paul Tripp says that there's pantheistic panic that breaks out aboard the ship. Okay, now think about the dominant view of God in their day. The dominant view was there are many gods. So there is a God for everyone and everything. There is a God of the sea. There is a God of the land. There is a God of fertility. There is a God of everything, So if you're kind of seeing this through the eyes of the sailors, here's what's happening in them. They're trying to figure out what combination is going to work here. We've got to get the right guy praying to the right God and that right God and that right guy praying to the right God the right thing. So they're really on the search for this combination of how are we going to get this storm to steal for us? How are we going to have our lives spared? Okay, so then I think this is just kind of a funny kind of reality for most of our lives. As soon as they get the sense of, man, this praying thing isn't working out very well, right? I mean, this is just not, this is not cutting it for us. Watch what they do next. Next phrase. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So they go with the pragmatic approach, right? If praying doesn't work, then we'll just go to work. We'll get everything that's got a handle on it, has some weight to it, and we're going to throw it overboard. Now, when I just kind of watch this scene or kind of look at this scene, it reminds me like one of the instant thoughts that kind of drop into my brain is what I look like when I'm cleaning our house. See, it looks a lot different for me to clean our house as opposed to Laura to clean our house. See, Laura is going to get like that old picture that's been passed down through like nine generations that nobody's seen in like 19 years She's going to make sure there's a place for that. I'm that guy that when I see that, I'm trying to find the nearest trash can, right? I mean, there is no such thing as like a sentimental thing that we're keeping. I, I am the clear the clutter guy for our house, right? And this is what's going on when you get to this kind of passage here. You've got people on this ship that anything that's got a handle is being deported over the side of that ship and it's done. It's this pragmatic approach that if prayer doesn't work, then we're going to kind of do our thing, lighten the kind of the load on this ship to make it a little more storm worthy. Okay, now let's stop and chat here. As you read the first several verses of Jonah chapter 1, the narrator is, is conveying to you, the reader, like it's it's painfully obvious, right? That, that the sailors don't have a big enough view of God or the world to make sense of their storm. That their view of God and the world, that their worldview is not big enough to figure out what is happening here. They kind of determine what, what's going on here. They can't make sense of this thing. They don't know what's happening. All they know is they're in the middle of a storm and they're doing everything they can to find the right combination to kind of still the storm. They have no idea what's going on, right? When you're reading this from our perspective, it's real obvious that their view of God is totally deficient. It's impossible for them to make sense of this. Like when I read this, here's one of the things that starts to kind of kind of work into my heart. I think this should for you too. Is there should be like a saddening, heartbreaking view for these sailors. Now, they're trying everything, but, but they 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 just don't have the right information here. They just don't have the right view to, to deal with this. And I can't help but think about our city and the culture that God has us in. Where pantheistic panic is everywhere. Where men and women have bowed down to a thousand different gods. They have bent their knee at the altar of their kids. We've got a culture that bends their knee to the idol of our work, to our success, to power, to control, to our image. There's a billion different gods that people are bowing their knee to. And here's the truth for all of them. Their view of God, when the storms of life break onto them, they do not have a big enough view of God, an accurate enough view of the world to make sense of those things. And here is the ironic picture in verse 5. is Our, our prophet is, is under the ship asleep while pantheistic panic has broken out. And I just can't help but read that and see like this visible illustration of the church. In the midst of a culture, in the midst of neighborhoods, in the midst of cities, that are searching so hard of how to make sense out of these things, how to make sense out of life and death, all these storms that life brings. When there's pantheistic panic that has erupted everywhere, the church has kind of settled into the confines of their buildings while the world dies on the deck. Now think about the reality of this for your own heart. How often are you praying for your own neighborhood? for your own group of friends that that don't have an accurate and big enough view of God and the world to make sense of these things. I mean, I, I think we would all probably say that when we look at our life, we have all probably kind of had this drowsiness that has drifted over us to where we're just kind of indifferent, right? We're indifferent to the fact that there's pagans on the deck dying. Like, this is the weird thing about sleep, right? You never really have this moment where you tell yourself, okay, in one second, I'm going to sleep. It doesn't work that way, right? You just close your eyes and it just kind of happens, right? And this is why when you wake up, like one of one of the common questions after you wake up is, how long did I just sleep for, right? Because you don't really know what's happening there. It just kind of happens to you. And this is where I think a lot of us are. There has been like this fog of, of indifference that has settled over us, that has made us drowsy, where we are totally indifferent and asleep to the culture around us. We've totally just stiff arm the mission of God as if us coming in here and sleeping for a while is God's goal for us. I mean, where does that register for you? I mean, that's painful for me, right? Okay, let's go on. Verse 6. The captain's going to make this trip into the ship, and, and he's going to find their paying passenger, Jonah. And this is kind of how the, the story works out. So the captain came and said to him, now I would just kind of insert here that like I think that you could with, with a lot of surety insert that there is like probably some anger, probably some agitation. This guy is thrown their cargo over the top because they're scared for their life. And he just walks in down to the bottom of the ship and, and finds Jonah asleep, right? And this is what he says. What do you mean you sleeper? I I love the Bible. We know from the Bible that sarcasm is at least 2,800 years old, right? We know that. I mean, he's looking at this guy thinking, what is your problem? How do you sleep through that, right? I mean, did you just take an Ambien or what? What is happening here? You see this sarcastic bent come out of this guy. And then look what the captain says. Arise, call out to your God perhaps the, the, your God or the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. He's still looking for this lock, this combination of right person praying to the right God, the right prayer. But I, I think there is just an apt metaphor there too, just for us as the church. The captain says, Jonah, stop sleeping and start praying. I think that would be a good thing for a lot of us to probably do. That maybe today God would just kind of arouse us. Like he would be the captain of that ship and arouse us out of that sleep today. To to a heart for and a breaking for the people around us. I mean, that would be a good grace from God to do that. Okay, the story continues. In verse 7, you're going to see kind of the reflex of the human heart when we get into a pinch, into a tight situation. Watch how—watch the reflex of these pagan sailors. Watch their response. And they said to one another, "'Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come up on us.'" I mean, isn't this kind of interesting where their immediate response to, there is a storm and we're about to die, their response is, let's find somebody to blame for that, Right? We need to find somebody that we can point the finger at. We can make pay for this. You ever find that tendency in you, that when you get pinched, rather than kind of taking a good evaluation of your heart, you instantly start playing the blame game, right? But let's find somebody that we can put a fault on in the middle of this, and, and their kind of um, their kind of method for determining like who was at fault here was throwing lots, casting lots. And so here's kind of the idea of that. It would be similar to like a dice, right? And so you've got one side that would be black, one side that would be white, and they would throw two of them. And if both of them came up as dark, it was a no-go. If both of them came up as light, it was a yes. If they were kind of the one dark, one light, it was a redo. And lo and behold, they cast the lot, and look at what happens. Second part of verse 7. So they cast the lot, and the lot fell on Jonah. Their paying passenger is the problem here, right? Jonah, this unfamiliar face that just happens to kind of board their ship, he, he's the issue. Okay, then they start, I mean, they, they break out the, the courtroom scene, right? They become the lawyers, they put him on trial, and they start peppering questions at him in verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Essentially, they're saying, Jonah, we know it's you, so fess up. What's the problem? What's the deal here? What's going on? Right, and this is his response in verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. A beautiful confessional statement there, right? Good theology, writ all that. Okay, now look what this does to the people, to the sailors, the pagan sailors. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Okay, so let's kind of chat through this one. This is an important moment in the story for the sailors, right? They go from "I don't know what's causing this storm. Let's find the right combo and get this settled," to Jonah, "You're the problem." But even more than you being the problem, it is that you are caught in the crossfires of your God. That's the problem. That this God that you just said is the creator of all things, the sustainer and the king of all things, that you've—I mean—that you've run from. That you're fleeing that God this is the problem see for the first time that they go from like a ignorant fear to an informed fear to like an informed i'm starting to see the back end of this thing and i'm starting to see that we are caught up in the midst of the pursuit of god and his way we profit that somehow we just happen to be in the middle of that storm right see for the first time they they are growing in their awareness of this reality that the waves of Jonah's rebellion are breaking against their boat. That the waves of Jonah's rebellion are breaking against their boat. See, they are living in the middle of, this, just the reality of, there's always communal consequences to our personal sin. Are we get a picture of that? May God just drop that on us. That your personal sin always carries communal consequences. It always does. It always affects those around you. I mean, you could go to Joshua chapter 7 and watch Achan. Remember that story? Where God has clearly said, don't take any of Jericho's plunder. But what does Achan do? He's got the sticky fingers. He grabs some, buries it under his tent. The next few days, the people of Israel go out to make war on another city, and they're defeated. People of Israel, men of Israel, die, 36 of them, because of Achan's sin. Moreover, it's going to go on to say that Achan lost his life in the midst of that, and all of his sons and daughters died with him. That is the communal consequences of your personal sin. This is what happens. Your sin will always break against other people's lives. I mean, you could think of it in, in 1 Chronicles 21, David, he crosses a clear command of God, God told him, you don't take a census of of your people. You don't do that. You trust me to be a good leader and to provide everything you need. So he, in proud defiance, he crosses the commands of God. He does a census with his people. 70,000 men of Israel died because of David's personal sin. That is the communal consequences of our sin. Dad's in the room. Let this settle on you. You do not sin in a vacuum. You do not have, there is no such things as private sin in your life. They're all public and they all carry communal consequences. Your family will reap the, the, the rewards of your sin. Mom's in the room. Man, let this reality settle on you, that sin always, like it just has this trail of communal consequences that flow right behind it into everyone around you. I mean, let this, let this become, like, let your heart grow in awareness of that, that there is no such thing as a private sin in your life. They all carry these communal consequences. So the sailors, they're looking at this and they're connecting the dot. Jonah's rebellion is breaking on us. Okay, let's go on. Verse 11. And you're gonna, you're about to see irony pop off the page everywhere here. Look at how this plays out. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us for the sea grew more and more tempestuous? I, I think it's ironic The 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 pagans, these sailors, they would do anything at this moment that God asked them to do. They just don't know what to do. The prophet Jonah knows exactly what God wants him to do, but he will not do it. I get just this irony that pops off the page, that the pagans look more like followers of God than Jonah does, than than the prophet does. Okay, keep reading here, verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. A shocking response that Jonah gives, and and, and you can tell the sailors are put off by it. They're shocked by that. Watch verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Irony. The pagans are more concerned for Jonah's life than Jonah is for the pagans. Just irony, right? The, 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 the role of the prophets and the pagans looks totally different here. Okay, keep reading. Verse 14. A climatic point in chapter 1. Verse 14. And I'm going to get you to circle a couple of words here as we read. Therefore they called out to, their, to, the, to the Lord. Circle that word, Lord. And then they said this. O oh Lord, circle that word Lord again. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, oh, circle that word Lord, have done as it pleased you. For the first time in the book of Jonah, The the pagan sailors are now calling out to to Jonah's God. They're using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the big picture view of God. They are starting to call out to God. Three times that that covenant name of God is used there, the Lord, Yahweh. They're calling out to him. And isn't this irony That, that the pagans are the one calling out to the God of the scriptures when it should be the Prophet? I mean, isn't it, like, isn't it ironic that they are the ones that are praying, God, may, wait, wait, you know, may we not perish here. May you spare us, may you save us, when it should be Jonah praying that for them. I mean, isn't that just ironic all throughout there? Verse 15, so they picked Jonah up, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. That's a story for you right there, right? I mean, that—that that is an unsuspecting day, just a normal day. And all of a sudden, the fury of God breaks out, right? Okay, so now we're going to rewind and we're going to come back to, to Jonah here. So now let's walk through the same story through the eyes of our man, Jonah. Okay, so go back to verse four with me. By the time you get to verse four, if you're Jonah, you've got the back end information. You know what's going on if you're Jonah. This is not a surprise. You—you you, Everything, you've got all access to, you know, all the information here. He knows that he is a prophet of the Lord. He knows that God has commanded him to go to Nineveh. He knows that he has rebelled against God and has gone to, to Joppa. He knows that he has boarded that boat in rebellion. And he knows that he is on his way to Tarshish in rebellion against God. So when you get to chapter or verse four, I think if you were following Jonah around that you would see like a twitch in his eye. He's just waiting for the pursuit of God. I, he is a savvy enough prophet to know that God does not just let his prophets do their thing without coming after them. I mean, I think he's savvy enough to know that the pursuing grace of God is on the way for him. I mean, I, I think there's a twitch in his eye looking behind every bush for that for that strong hand of God to come. And let this be just a, a quick, just just for us to sit in this. That God does not allow us to sin long term successfully. If you are a son or daughter of God, He is going to come after you. Now you may not know what that looks like. The form of that grace may look different for all of us, but God is on the way when we rebel. And so we get a real quick picture in in verse 4 of of kind of the form of God's grace. It it comes, kind of part one of God's pursuing grace, comes in the form of a storm. Watch this kind of work out. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah is now growing in his awareness of this God of the scriptures. He is unavoidable. He is inescapable. You can run, but you can't hide. Here comes the storm. Now now watch the next verse here, chapter five, or verse five. And I think this is interesting because we've just kind of walked through that contrast with the sailors. They're on the deck, pantheistic panic, but notice our, our guy Jonah here. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. I love what Sinclair Ferguson is. He's kind of talking about this particular part of of the book of Jonah. He says this about it. The narrative of Jonah's flight spells out in capital letters the spiritual disintegration, the spiritual just downward spiral that eventually characterizes all disobedience. He's saying that what you see here is what happens to everyone in disobedience. What you see here is the spiritual disintegration of people. What you see here is the downward spiral. And you see this throughout the text, that he goes down to Joppa, he goes down into the ship, and now he is fast asleep in the ship, sleeping through a storm, mind you, right? I mean, this is a guy that is not cold. Right. Okay, now here's what you're seeing here play out. You are seeing the personal consequences of sin. The sailor saw the communal. Now we're seeing the, the, the personal with, with Jonah. That your sin will always cost you. Your sin will always carry consequences. You never sin cost free. I like how one pastor put it. He uses kind of this imagery for sin where he uses kind of this view of radioactive material. That sin has an ability to taste good on the front end, but that sweet tasting, good feeling pleasure of sin is surely and suddenly eating us on the inside out, right? This is the personal consequences of sin. This is what C.S. Lewis describes in his book, The Great Divorce, when he's trying to to give you an image of what it means to run from God and what it does to you, and what it means to run toward God and what that does to you. And here's his description of what it means to run away from God. The people that are running from God, they are growing more and more see-through, more and more hollow, more and more empty, more and more they're growing less human. That's the personal consequences of sin, running from God. But then on the other side, those people running to God, he pictures as bright and and vibrant. They're thick and solid. They're becoming more and more of what a human being is created to be. This is sin for you. Every time we dig our heels in in defiance toward God, we are becoming more and more hollow, more and more see-through, more and more empty. This is the personal Consequences of sin in your life. So dads and moms and teenagers and singles and pornography makes you see through. It's radioactive, right? That, that heart is, ra- that, that's radioactive material. Pride, radioactive material. Bitterness, radioactive. Unforgiveness, radioactive they all carry a cost in whatever part of your heart that you have set up resistance to God it will always carry a price tag to it there's always one nailed to that sin the story goes on verse six now this is an awkward moment if you're Jonah right there's a storm people are going crazy on the deck pantheistic panic is everywhere all that and all of a sudden, the, the captain walks in on him in the middle of sleeping, right? I mean, how, how does that happen? So watch this play out. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? I mean, Jonah is caught. I mean, this is the guy that shouldn't be sleeping. That all of a sudden, somebody walks into the office, he's at work, and wow, his head is down on the desk and he's snoring, right? And it's, it's funny, in the, in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation, an early one of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Um, It it makes a little note out beside that that says the captain was made aware of Jonah because of his heavy snoring, right? I mean, just kind of a funny sidebar there that the guy is out cold. The captain walks in on him and then watch how this plays out. Watch what he says to Jonah. Arise, call out to your God perhaps the God or your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, see, if you're reading this in your English Bible, you might miss this. But in your Hebrew, if you if you were to read this in Hebrew, you would see an instant correlation of what that, that captain, unbeknownst to him, what he just said, arise, call out to your God. You would see the instant connection in that and the words of God in verse 2. Look at that in verse 2 arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. Do you see what God's doing here? God is using this captain to arouse Jonah with the exact same verbiage, the exact same phrase that God used just a few days before to interrupt and interfere, and intervene in Jonah's life. I mean, there is this, this is just like this funny, I mean, it would be really funny if it wasn't so sad view of God just won't let this guy go, right? I mean, Jonah is doing everything he can to avoid God, yet God is coming at Jonah from every angle, even the words of a captain. It reminds me, C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, it's called Surprised by Grace, he's mentioning this unrelenting pursuit of God in his life. He was an atheist that turned Christian. God, God wooed him, drew him, saved him. And this is kind of part of this progression for him. Listen to what he says about God. He said, I had always wanted above all things to be, not to be interfered with. Just like Jonah, not to be interfered. Let me do my own thing here, God. And then he goes on to say this. I had wanted to call my soul my own, but then God did interrupt. He did interfere. And this is what C.S. Lewis, how he describes it. You might picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for just for a second from my work. Every time I, I got distracted from my work long enough to think, you might picture me feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of Him, of God, who I so earnestly desired not to meet. This is Jonah. There is no one on the planet he would rather not hear from in this moment than God. And God uses even the words of this captain to scream at Jonah, to arouse Jonah, to interfere with Jonah. Okay, but, but it goes on. Think about this. He says, arise, call out to your God. And I think this is just a, a good thing for you to tuck in your back pocket. Isn't it interesting that Jonah never obeys? He doesn't obey God in chat, in verse two, and he doesn't obey now the, the captain in verse six. He never calls out to God. And I think there's a little nuance in there that would be good for you to, to think about. When you are on the run from God trying desperately to avoid him, it makes it really hard to humbly cry out to him, doesn't it? It makes it really hard to fall to your knees humbly praying to God when you're desperately trying to avoid God. So, so maybe you could, maybe you could say it this way. Part of your kind of evaluation of the spiritual vibrancy in your life ought to be tied to the passion and the ease and the want of you praying to God. I mean, this is a picture of spiritual disintegration happening within Jonah. Okay, so watch verse seven. He's aroused out of his sleep by the familiar words of God in in Jonah 1-2. And then in verse seven, it gets worse for Jonah. He's awakened to the sailors on the deck casting lots, trying to place some blame here, trying to figure out, That it's Jonah who's behind this storm, right? Okay, so verse seven. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come up before us. So they cast lots and the lot, lo and behold, fell on Jonah. This is grace. Can you see God in this? Just the funny, I mean, Jonah is avoiding with every ounce of energy in him and God is unrelenting. They throw the lot, and Jonah is the man, right? I mean, you just can't help but read that and kind of smirk, right? It's just, it's funny. Okay, next passage, verse 8. Next verse. Th- they're going to put the trial, they- they've got the trial going, and here they go, barrage of questions. Tell us on whose account um, this has come. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And then verse 9, this beautiful confessional rich theological, uh, you know, theological statement, accurate theologically, he says this. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Two quick observations. Verse nine shows us that we can have proper theology and terrible obedience. Verse 9 shows us that even when our, theology right, we, er, when our theology is right, we can still be the rebel on the run. We need good theology around here. We, we, you need that, I, we all need great theology, a view of God in the world that makes sense of everything. But right theology does not equal obedience for you. And I just think it's interesting that you see in Jonah... A willingness to adopt stunning statements of contradiction. You see Jonah say, I, like, I am God's, I I fear God, the God who created all things, the sovereign sustainer of everything, and yet they're looking at him thinking, but, but you're running from him. Like, how does that work exactly? And and let me just kind of press on you for a second, because I think a lot of us have grown comfortable in our lives, like Jonah, adopting statements of stunning contradictions. There is a heaven and a hell. What what kind of a heart should that produce in us for our neighbors? God is a satisfying Savior. What sort of a heart should that produce in us? I mean, isn't it ironic that we can say He's a satisfying Savior and then in a frenzy, run after a thousand substitutes for him? I mean, do you see what's happening here? And maybe I can ask it this way for you. Is your life a beautiful demonstration of what you say you believe? Is it a beautiful demonstration of what you would confess theologically? Second observation is if we're not careful We will allow our life to silence our lips. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson kind of comment on this verse. He says, The one question Jonah did not answer was this, his occupation. He was no longer able to say, I am a prophet of the Lord. His witness had been silenced. The very work for which he had been created lay incomplete. He had no word of God to give. I'll never forget this illustration that I heard a a guy. I mean, this was, this goes back to like teenage years. A guy was doing a revival at our church, doing this preaching thing. I'll never forget him using this illustration. He was a pastor of a church and one of the men in his church worked in kind of a heavy industrial type job. I mean, it was around heavy equipment where one bad move and you could literally die there. Like it's one of those sort of jobs. This guy came to church every week, but he was a hard hearted man. He, he was a, a, a kind of a brass and a crass man. He, 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 his words and his demeanor just, just kind of demeaned people everywhere. Right? He was that guy. Came to church, but just a, just a jerk, really. Okay. And so this guy's now in the, the pastor's office recounting the story that happened the previous week. At his workplace, a guy had made a mistake and he was paying for it. It was a fatal blow. This guy was going to die. Everybody in in kind of the workplace gathered around him, trying to comfort and console, do everything they could to help him. And and the guy is just through his tears, he's vocalizing to the pastor of more than anything in that moment, I wanted to talk about the good news of the gospel, that there is a Savior who stands ready to save even now for you. And through his tears, he looked at the pastor and says, I could not open my mouth. And so just gently, the the pastor says, why why couldn't you? Why, Why couldn't you say that? And to summarize, his response was, because my life had absolutely silenced my lips. It made it impossible to speak in that one moment that I needed to. See, your life built a platform from which you get to stand on and talk about the good news of the gospel. And if you're not careful, your platform will make a mockery of what you want people to see and what people to know and what people to experience. Jonah's mouth had been silenced by his behavior. Story goes on. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, "Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you." Now, this is that point in the story where, if you're rooting for Jonah, if you're in Jonah's corner, right, you're thinking maybe he's getting this. Maybe he's walking out of his self-absorbed world into the world of other people here. Maybe this is going to be that moment where the hardness of God in the storm softens Jonah. Jonah's heart. Maybe it is, but I don't think so. I, I think what you're seeing in, in, the, in this couple of verses here, I think you're seeing the depths of Jonah's defiance. Rather than a selfless act, I think it's a selfish act of, of kind of final defiance against God. Two reasons why I think that. One is because when you go to chapter four, you see him do it again. You see him look at Nineveh outside the city after he's called out against it. And he literally looks at God and says, I would rather die, in verse 8 of chapter 4, I would rather die than see these people repent. So kill me now. Right? You see it happen again in chapter 4, but even closer to chapter 1, I I, I think if you ask yourself this question, what would a repentant heart in Jonah have sounded like? What would it have sounded like in, in verse 12 there? And say, I think this is what a repentant heart in Jonah would have sounded I think he would have said this. This, is, this has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. The word of the Lord came to me and it said, go and preach in Nineveh. And in a total act of defiance and rebellion against God, I went to Joppa. I boarded your boat. And in an act of defiance, I tried to flee as far from the call of God as I could possibly get. But God in his tender affection for me, his tender violence for me, he has come after me like a good father would any wayward son. And he has tracked me down and he is in the middle of rescuing me from me. That's what you see happening. But here's the good news, pagan sailors. Let's turn this boat around. Let's head it back to Joppa because I am now humbly repenting. I've resolved in my heart when we get back to Joppa, I am on my way to Nineveh to be God's man on God's mission to get God's message to that pagan city. I am in. We turn the boat around. Your life, my life, we're all spared. But you don't see that. You see, kill me. I'd rather go that route. Edmund Clowney, um, he, he comments like this on this verse. Jonah decided that he was expendable. God had called him to warn Nineveh that in 40 days it would be destroyed. Suppose he removed himself from the action, a.k.a. throw me into the sea. Suppose he does that. The Ninevites would not receive the warning. Nineveh's destruction would be certain. Jonah was willing to perish so that all of Israel might be preserved. So I think you're just seeing the depths of his defiance. That God, you can send a storm. and If that's how you want to play, I'll kill my... Let's do this. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, for they could not, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They were starting to see that the hard hand of God would not be kind of counteracted by their hard rowing. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Now, we could stop there, could kind of be over, but that's not where it stops in chapter one. There's kind of three kind of concluding things, one from the pagan, one from the prophet, and and one kind of as a point forward that I want to kind of close with for you. Kind of the concluding piece of chapter one. Number one, let's, let's look at the pagans. Verse 14, they called out to God. They prayed to God using the covenant name of God. God, will you save us? May we not perish. Verse 15, they throw Jonah over and they see God calm the storm. Verse 16, look at it. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They just saw the powerful and strong arm of God rescue and deliver the strong and powerful arm that can cause a storm and calm a storm. And as they sat in the wonder of that power, God melted their heart. God just revealed to him a picture of who he is and who they are not. I think this is an interesting progression as you look through chapter one. Look at verse five. It says they were afraid right? Verse 5, they're afraid. Verse 10, they're afraid again. But by the time you get to verse 7, look how, look how the fear changes. Rather than being afraid, it says the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Fear is a good thing. Being afraid of God is not a good thing. Being afraid of God, I love how one author puts it, being afraid of God is the result of us not knowing God. It's the result of us not having an adequate view of God, but fearing God a reverence, a respect for God is what happens when we do know God. See, what you see, I'm not saying that that sailors were converted. I, I don't know that. I don't think the text goes far enough to tell us. But I will tell you this, the text does go this far, that God revealed himself in a mighty way. The God of relentless grace showed himself off to these pagan sailors. And this is one of the ironies in the story, right? That Jonah, out of his rebellion of God's plan to to reveal his grace to a pagan city, he runs from God. And even in his act of rebellion, it forms a platform by which God's going to reveal himself to some pagan sailors. See, this is like a storied presentation of Job 42 that none of the plans and purposes of God can be thwarted. That you can try with everything in you to frustrate the plans of God, but you only find yourself fulfilling them. Isn't that the irony of this? That you cannot escape this sovereign good God. From the view of our prophet, what's the result for him? The concluding piece for him? He just got thrown into the sea. Hard-hearted defiance. throw me in, who cares? this is how we're going to play, let's play ball. Right, They hurl him into the sea, and he's thinking this. This is my final act of defiance toward God. There is no way God kind of has a chest move that's going to match this one. But we see in verse 17 that God's not finished. That God's pursuing grace even gets underneath his final act of kind of rebellion here. This defiant act of, God, I would rather die than submit to you we see the pursuing God of grace, this God of grace that stretches the limits of language, that it hasn't run out yet. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Big ocean, small fish happens to be swimming by a one little boat in the big massive ocean that just happens to throw out their man Jonah at the exact same time the fish is swimming by. This is the relentless, and ruthless pursuit of God's grace for his prophet. This is what it's picturing here for us. That God's grace reaches lower, reaches further than Jonah's defiance. That God will not let his people sin successfully. He does not let Jonah win. And God does not let us win. And lastly, look at the last phrase in verse 17. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah chapter one ends with a point to the coming savior. And we reading this post-Jesus know that one that was a true and greater Jonah didn't just spend three nights in the belly of a fish, but three nights in the belly of the earth, right? We, we've got a picture of this true and greater Jonah who, who unlike Jonah, right? He is a good prophet. Rather than running from the will of God, he runs to The will of God. Rather than running from the enemies, he runs to the enemies. Rather than this selfless act of defiance to the will of God, he self-sacrificially gives everything to accomplish the will of God. See, we've got this true and greater Jonah that was thrown into the storm of God's wrath for you and I, so we would never have to experience it. So that we, his sons and daughters, could be adopted into his family and have the the tender, the tender violence, the pursuing affection of God's grace. that we on this side of the cross know that the true and greater Jonah climbed up on the cross and endured our punishment. He took the place of our rebellion, that he was in the body, right? That he was in the belly of the well, three, three not for, for you, for your sin, as a good and sacrificial savior. Let's pray. So as we finish up this morning, um, I'll give you just a few minutes to kind of sit on that. Kevin's going to play a song for us, and, and we'll, we'll sing, and just within view, Jonah 1. Just allowing pieces and parts of that to settle on your own heart. asking God to expose unbelief in us, asking God to reveal where we're like Jonah, asking God to give us eyes to see his pursuing and relentless grace for, uh, for us, for, for his wayward sons and daughters. Maybe some of us are like the pagan sailors who when we start the chapter out have a misinformed view of God and maybe this morning God has informed that view maybe even to the point that we would even go a step further than the pagan sailors, where we would be willing to submit our lives to, to trust God above all things, in all things, to treasure God. Maybe we would be willing to go that last step and say, God, here is all of me. God, will you rescue me from my own rebellion? God, will you save me? I pray that for some of us in this room. And so God, I I pray that as we kind of digest chapter one, God, that, that you would blow our hearts up in a view of the gospel, that you would blow our affections up for you. God, that we would be people, unlike Jonah, willing to repent as you expose things in our heart, that all of these pockets of resistance would be crushed by your pursuing grace. God, I pray that, I want that for us, I hope that for us, And God, I pray that you would do that for us. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing with us. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.